Have you ever wondered why it is that we do what we do and who we do it with? Then this is a podcast for you, an exploration of human beings through systemic psychology and Unani biotypes with Rodrigo Garcia Platas, Ross Everett, and Brian McElhaney. This is Biotypical. So this week's episode is going to be a little interesting. I got a message from Brian, uh, uh, which, it, oh, okay, well, you guys are talking. Sorry, we're in, we're in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I got a message from Brian, and it was just, and, and, you know, when you're in biotypes, occasionally you'll just get a photo of a hand or a body or a screenshot of a dating app, and I think that's just becoming normal. <laughs> I but, mean, we, we send row photos of girls on dating apps all the time. We're like, should we try? Should we go for it? And he'll be like, no. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> don't even get close to that. <laughs> um, but uh, this time was a hand of a friend. And he goes, this guy's a skeptic. And then Rodrigo <laughs> said, most melancholics are. But we decided that we're going to have this episode be a, a, a nice little skeptic episode because I don't think we've had someone who's skeptical of biotypes on the podcast before. So, Brian, you want to take it away? I will. And I think that it's, yes, we sort of talked about it being a skeptic episode, but I think it's like a little bit deeper than that. So this is my buddy Andrew that I'm with right here this and it's the hand that i said yeah and there's, there's the hand so, i can tell i know yeah. i had when i see one yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and yeah we were having an, a, a nice late night kind of over a few beers talk the other night about biotypes and andrew was uh very skeptical. And I loved it. It was such a great conversation. You felt yeah, bad the next morning. You yeah. were like, I'm sorry. Well, I fought I, you, you know, so hard. Yeah, I got a little, got a little heated, but, and, um, and I was like, no, that's <laughs> great. And then, but what was so interesting was we talked about it for so long and it sort of like kind of revealed to me, like what, why, what your, where your skepticism comes from, or at least where a lot of it comes from. And Andrew's a person that I've known since I was a kid and he's gone kind of through the ringer in kind of the, the system we have set in place for kids when it comes to pharmaceuticals and therapy and oh. rehab and things like that. And I think Andrew has a bit been uh, taken down some paths that weren't super helpful to him. Some paths that were, some that weren't. And in doing so, it has made him really skeptical of kind of anyone who does this. And I was just thinking like, oh, it'd be really cool to have you on the podcast and talk about kind of your experience as a kid, mm -hmm. you know, doing some of this stuff. And if anyone who's listening, any listeners who maybe were over-medicated as a kid or felt that they were being put unfairly into certain boxes or had therapy that really was like wrong for them that, you know, our society deemed was appropriate at the time, this might be a useful thing to kind of talk about those things. Also, Andrew has some <laughs> incredible stories about escaping from rehab. That is, <laughs> I mean, they are four times. I mean, wow. I kind of just want you to like talk about that yeah. a little bit because it's it's kind of. Amazing. I want to know everything now. I know these are my favorite episodes where we have people come on and then it just turns into a therapy session that Brian and I just get to watch. <laughs> yeah. So, I just want yeah. to get to know Andrew. Yeah, Andrew, you want to talk about yourself? I don't even sure. know where to start with you, but sure. you do maybe. Um, yeah. So closer. do I need to lean in? Can I? Really yeah, hear? get get in there closer. Okay. Um, so yeah, I guess kind of where I was at with Brian was, um, we were talking about this biotype thing. We'd had drinks and then like, I was like really pushing back against it. And I was kind of going at the end of it, like going to go, okay, you know, well, here's why. Um, and so the reason for that was I was, um, I was in a, a thing called wilderness 
uh, wilderness therapy, I guess. <laughs> it's like, for, it's part of the troubled teen industry. I think my, I had a cousin that went to that. Was it in Montana or somewhere? Or is there like a whole bunch of places that so, do this? So yeah, there's, there's, there's tons of them. Um, it's, it's literally a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, so I went to one in uh, upstate New York and then I went to another one that was in North Georgia. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that's kind of where this came from. Should I yeah, dive right in? Talk about how you got there and <laughs> okay. again, how you escaped is really okay. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, look, this is, was a very traumatic point in my life. Um, but you know, this story is very, very, um, kind of crazy. And so like, don't feel like, I mean, there are moments where you're gonna be like, what the fuck, you know, like, so don't <laughs> hold back on that because it is kind of crazy. Um, but basically I was, you know, I was 16 years old. I was kind of, um, you know, doing smoking weed and, and drinking and kind of hanging out with some shady people. And, you know, my parents were really worried about me and, um, their decision that they made was to, to send me to one of these programs. Um, so I was, you know, it was kind of middle of the day. I was just hanging out at the house. And then all of a sudden I had, um, two guys show up in my house and, uh, they, you know, I was told I was going to these programs and these guys would be escorting me. Um, kind of a caveat, that is the strangest profession that you could ever get into. <laughs> escorting people. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm going to go kidnap these kids for you and you'll pay me. Um, but so, yeah. But so, also, if like kidnapping kids is your thing, like way to find a way to make it work. To do it yeah, so no, socially yeah. acceptable. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, you're, you're, um, you're not in problems anymore. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, yeah, so these guys showed up and they took me to this, um, they flew me up to upstate New York. It was December 15th. Um, I flew up there and I was right on the border of, of New York and Canada. So a really cold, really kind of brutal uh, environment. Um, and so, yeah, so for like, for those that don't know, like the wilderness programs, they take you out there and for you know, you're there every day, you sleep outside, you cook for yourself, you have to learn all these wilderness skills. And on top of that, you're getting some kind of like exercises that you do with with people that um, are taking who are, you know, like the junior counselors, I guess you would call them. Um, they're kind of with you the whole time. And then you do one-on-ones with an actual licensed therapist and they report all that back to your parents. And then they make decisions on what is best for you. Um, but the thing that I was explaining to Brian is that the way that this particular program that I was in, um, they pitched it to not only me, but also to our parents. They said, Hey, look, this is a 28 day program. If he does everything that he needs to do and he works hard and he does what he wants and he does the work, he'll be out of here in 28 days. Now it'll be $30,000 for that first 28 days. And for every day- I told you that, our prices were too low, bro. <laughs> I know, we're yeah. doing it wrong. Yeah. So, so they say, so then for every day after the 28th day, it's $500 a day and you know, whatever. So, um, Basically, and then after the 28 days, you need to stay for another month and then another month. Right, and right, right, right. Month. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you, no one graduates in 28 days. And part of the reason for that is because we wake up right at sunrise, we hike all day, you know, full packs with, with food. I mean, very heavy. And we're hiking the Adirondacks. We do like 20 or 30 miles a day. Then we get to where we're going. 
we'd set down our packs. We'd have to build our camp and, and get a fire going and do all this shit. And then with the allotted amount of time you had in between all of that, where the sun was still up because we didn't have head, headlamps, so we couldn't see any of the shit that we were trying to read and work on, <laughs> they'd say, that's that's your time to work, you know, on this. And not every day we get there, you know, sometimes we get there and the sun is down and then you, you lose a day. So it's kind of set up for failure. Um, and so, yeah, so I did that for, you know, and, and the other thing is, you know, you get this big packet of stuff um, and some of it's like self-help kind of like work through exercises. And then the other half is like wilderness skills. So like building traps and, you know, foraging for certain things, learning how to, you know, create fire and like do all this shit. So you can't graduate until you can like build a trap and do that right. shit. Exactly. So you Which have- has nothing to do with your rehabilitation. Right. To- exactly. Um, so, you know, and it was really intense. I mean, it was like serious, serious shit, um, hiking wise, physically demanding. And it was, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was a lot. So, um, I did that. Um, I went through that program for 63 days. Um, so more than twice of what they um, said that mm-hmm. it was going to be. And um, so after well, convincing the, your parents that you need to stay. Right. And the other thing, and it's, I'm glad you said that, is that one of the things they did was um, when I wanted to write letters to my parents, they would edit the letters and would or they wouldn't send them unless they were edited to their approval. So um, a lot of the things that, you know, and I don't know this, but I imagine that they were getting these letters and going like, you know, look, see, look, he's improving. See, look, he says he's having fun here and he's enjoying it. And like, you know, he feels better about it. You know, it's like, it was kind of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're kind of spoon feeding, you know, look, it's working. Um, And so at the end of the graduation, is something like 90%, like nine out of 10 kids that go through this program get sent on to what's called a therapeutic boarding school. And those therapeutic boarding schools cost $100,000 a year to go to. Um, <laughs> so it's just a crazy amount of money. And to me, I look at that and I say, okay, well, there's this guy's recommending nine out of 10 kids go to this thing. He's probably like getting a kickback of some sort with those numbers. I don't know that, but that's kind of my theory. Um, so anyways, after the 63 days, I find out that I'm going to a therapeutic boarding school. Um, and I was not, I was not happy about that. I was not uh, willing to do that. I just was like, wait a minute. I just did fucking two months in the freezing cold <laughs> of upstate New York. Like I'm in a better place now. I feel like, you know, like I kind of did what you asked of me and now you're sending me to a new place and like i haven't spoken to anyone that i was at school with my friends none of that like had no communication with them so it was kind of like you know what the fuck like you know what you know you're sending me away so i come up with this idea um we were in <laughs> we were in amherst massachusetts i was going to a school that was somewhere in massachusetts um and so the night before i was supposed to leave um i stole my dad's keys to his rental car, about $2,000 in cash, um, a bunch of credit cards. And um, I got in the car and I drove to Hartford, Connecticut, and I boarded a bus to take me back to Atlanta. And on the way, the bus leaves and it's, it's on its way to Atlanta and I think I'm good. And the bus gets pulled over by the police. I'm arrested. 
um, taken to jail. They end up wow releasing me. Because, oh wait, just wait. <laughs> oh yeah, this is <laughs> this, this is, is this is light. This is very light. <laughs> this is introductory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so um, basically, I get released. They say we're just going to let this be handled uh, and in house, kind of. Um, so. My parents take me, the boarding school has now refused to take me because I'm a flight risk. <laughs> so they've totally won't take me. So my parents are kind of in this weird position, what they're going to do with me. And I'm, they're telling me the whole time, like, all right, you know, we're just taking back to Atlanta. So I didn't sleep for a while because I was up, you know, stealing a car. So I go into a hotel and I go to sleep. I wake up in the morning and there's two more of those fucking guys. <laughs> in the room with me and my stepdad just was in the room with me and i'm like going whoa whoa whoa!" you know he just leaves and doesn't say anything these guys take me and they say andrew we're taking you to another wilderness program (laughs) and this one is this one is in north georgia so in my mind i'm like going okay well fuck i was gonna ride the bus to atlanta anyways but now i get to fly down there this is actually a lot more comfortable and faster for me i'll just run when i get to the airport so we get on the plane. The guy who's taking me is an absolute fucking nut job. How like, old are you at this point? I'm 16 years old. Okay. So this is um, fascinating. I have so yeah. many things to say. Oh, yeah, 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 go yeah. for it. Okay. So we get on the plane. I mean, how in depth should I should tell them about the, the go the for the whole yeah, thing? Yeah, the, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. So um, on the plane, I'm, I'm trying to formulate my idea of how I'm going to run. So my plan was because the guy taking me was a huge dude. Um, and I'm like, you know, if something happens, you know, what am I going to do? I can't beat this guy up. You know what, you know, what, what's it going to be? So I come up with this idea of f- sort of like creating like a pepper spray type of uh, device where I, I ordered some orange juice. So I had orange juice. I was just thinking like, I'll put acidic things in here. So I put like soap in there. I put like, you know, bloody Mary mix inside. I like, I actually pissed in it. <laughs> You know, why not? <laughs> you know, kind of like mix it all, all the up. things you learned at the previous wilderness. Camp. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so I kind of have this stuff with me and like we get into the airport and I'm and when we go, we go to the get our rental rental car. We pull up, we go to the rental car place. And we're about to get in the car. And as soon as like the doors open, I like at this moment, like, all right, here we go again. So I fucking take off running. Uh, the guy chases me down. I, I hadn't slept the night before, so I was out of steam, pre- and, you know, adrenaline and all that shit. So I'm like running around this thing. And I'm like stuck in this like rental car place. So I'm like running from this guy and he comes around the corner. I tried throwing the shit on him, totally misses his face, just like gets on his shirt and then like grabs me, throws me to the ground, like kind of beats the shit out of me a little bit and like then drags me back to the car, throws me in the car, drives me to North Georgia. I get out and it's like, fuck, here we go again. I'm back in a wilderness program. So that was a second, that was a second attempt at running. So (laughs) now I'm in this group and it's like, it's just the whole thing. And, you know, I, I know that from my previous experience, the only time they take you into town is to go get a physical from a doctor. So I'm thinking, okay, this is my last chance to do this. So I get in the car, I go to do the physical and the guy who's with me this time is like a 70 year old man. I'm like, okay, I can outrun this guy for sure. So we end up going to the doctor's <laughs> office. I go through the whole thing and I just take off running and I'm in like middle of nowhere, North Georgia, like deliverance. If you've seen that movie, that's exactly where I am. So I'm like, I take off running from the guy. It's the middle of the day. You know, I get away from him. Um, I end up like 
kind of running around trying to figure out where the fuck I am. Um, I end up hiding under a trailer for a little while, like a double wide, like in a trailer park, um, like literally underneath it and like waited there for a couple hours and was like going, oh shit, like no one's here. Maybe I'll try to get out and see if I can find a phone to call somebody to come get me. Um, I go cut through this uh, dealership and this fucking mechanic, I guess the police had told everyone that this was yeah. happening. So this guy comes out of nowhere, tackles me. Addict uh, on the run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, again, a little bit beaten shit out of again. And then I get taken <laughs> to um, the, there was like a discussion about, well, you know, because I kind of fought back and they're like going, oh, okay, well, he needs an assault charge and a trespassing charge and all this. And again, they, they end up releasing me. So I get back in the car and on the way back, I start kind of like memorizing all the roads and shit that we're taking. And um, we get back into this program and this program, unlike the first one, this one was really bad. Um, the people that were hired to take care of us, that were looking over us, um, right? I talked about like kind of the junior counselor people. Mm -hmm. They were a much different breed. They were very uh, physical. Uh, they were very uh, just- Yeah, like way more hostile. Right, yeah, no empathy really for, for anyone. Um, and, you know, there was some definitely physical abuse going on. I believe that there is some sexual abuse happening to one of the kids in our group. Um, and there was just a lot of, uh, it was really, it was just really bad. And I was at that point, like really trying to figure out, you know, I just, I like, I knew I had to run. Um, and this being my fourth time, um, I really kind of put a lot of effort into it. So, um, and <laughs> you'll right like this. Time. Yeah, you'll like this. So they, I, I, I'm like two points away from being legally blind. So I, I can't see without my contacts. They wouldn't allow me to wear contacts. And I was, so they, they brought me, they brought me some glasses. My parents had sent some glasses and they give me glasses. And these are glasses that I wore when I was in third grade. So they're like mm -hmm. these big fucking things like this. And like, I was so mad in that moment, just of being there and whatever. So I just snapped the glasses to throw them and go fuck yourself kind of thing. <laughs> and um, so I can't see anything. So maybe should have <laughs> kept the glasses, but I didn't keep glasses. <laughs> so the other thing they did, cause I'm on what's called run watch. So run watch means that you might run on any given point. Yeah, uh, yes. But they have a little system put together where they, um, I would sleep in a sleeping bag in a, for back, lack of a better word, a, a tent. It's really like a kind of a lean to that we built with a tarp, but all the counselors sleep together. They put a tarp over me, over my sleeping bag and then sleep on either side so that I'm like stuck there. They yeah. take my shoes, you know, it was like, it was that kind of situation. So, um, yeah, so I I kind of planned this thing out. I, I really put all this thought into it. I um, was you know working. I was I was I I knew I had to figure out some things. Like okay, um, I don't have shoes. Like how am I going to do this without shoes? We're in the middle of the woods, you know, up in the mountains. So what I started doing, they allow you to to request um, supplies, basically like things that you broke or misplaced. So every week I was, re I was requesting like as many socks as I could get. And I ended up getting all these socks together. And then, um, I used pieces of my thermarest, like the little foam thing you sleep on, like a sleeping pad. And I cut out, um, basically <laughs> layered pieces of the therm. It was like sock thermarest, sock thermarest, sock thermarest. 
and I kind of like built these like little shoes. Um, and <laughs> so one night um, I waited uh, until the counselors fell asleep. And when I fell asleep, I kind of put my knees up like this to kind of give myself a little bit of room to, to get out. And I stuffed, I had all my clothing that, you know, I took everything out of my bag, stuffed it in there. So, you know, and then I flipped the thing over. So when I left, it would look like I was sleeping. Um, and yeah, and I was able to steal a flashlight from one of the counselors. Um, so I had a flashlight and I had a pair of shoes, still couldn't see anything. And I didn't know where I was. But wait, so you were, they were like asleep next to you and uh -huh. you basically un, over the tarp that's on you yeah. and you snuck out of that. Yeah, because I, I went to sleep, you know, I put my knees up. So it gave me a little bit more room to wiggle out <laughs> and um yeah. So well, you I, just like when you were like, they're sleeping next to you in the woods and you're getting out of there, like one yeah. false move and they see you. Were nope. you I mean, at this point, you're no, just like, I, fuck it. I've dealt with. I was, I was terrified. I was really terrified. Um, and, you know, at that point in my life, like where I was and feeling like so hopeless that I made this decision that like, if I got caught again, I was going to kill myself was kind of like where I was going with that. So, um, that's kind of where my headspace was at. I was like, I'm mm -hmm. fucking doing this. I have to get out of here. This is like, this is, this isn't worth, this isn't worth it. Um, and so I, I, I'll, I get out, I fucking really quietly, I sneak out of this thing. And I remember getting on my feet and I'm like in my little shoes that I've made and I'm jogging through the woods and it's like, I mean, I'll never forget that moment. It was like, holy shit, holy shit. Like I fucking did this. Um, so I end up running through the woods. I, I, I go through all of these, um, you know, I basically run through the woods at night uh, for hours. I don't know how long it was, but I was basically running through the woods, running through the woods, running through the woods. And then finally I hit a road. And I was like going, oh my God, this has got to be the same road that we took back. And I know how to get back because I memorized the shit. And I actually, when I was in the car on the third time I got caught, I was writing all the shit down on my arm. Um, so I kind of like had a map. Um, so I ended up taking this road back. It got me to this place called Clayton, Georgia. And then for the next two and a half days, I was totally on the run. Um, I had, you know, food that I had saved, you know, I like basically starved myself prior to leaving so that I had enough food to get through. Um, I stole some water from like, you know, a, a hose hookup that I found at night. Um, and I was basically on the run for about two and a half days. Um, and I ended up making it about 30 or 40 miles. Um, and at this point, I had been on an outside and was really, my feet were just destroyed. And um, I was scaling this rock face at one point and fell really bad and like fucked up my foot. Like didn't break it, but like hurt it badly to the point where I wasn't able to continue just going for it. So I go into a diner. I tell these people, my car's broken down. I, is there any way I can use the phone? Um, they allow me to use the phone. So I call a friend of mine and I tell him, um, you know, Hey man, look, I'm, this is where I am. Like, please come get me. Like, here's where I am. So, um, I'm waiting for my friend to come get me. What I don't know is, is that in the two and a half days that I've been gone, my parents have put out like a fucking like reward for any information. Uh, <laughs> 
is related to my capture. So I'm sitting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my friend, my friend who was supposed to pick me up, takes the money, tells my parents that I'm at this fucking diner. Oh, oh, no. I'm sorry for doing that, by the yeah. way. Yeah. It was bad. Yeah. Um, so basically, I can't believe that you guys are still friends. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I'm I'm waiting under the bridge. Uh, another thing that I don't know is that my father is so concerned you know he thinks i'm dead so they, they actually rented he chartered a helicopter and was flying around sort of the area to see if he could find any sign of me um and that's happening while i am under the bridge and i actually remember Whoa. seeing the helicopter and being like that's weird and then i didn't know that my dad was in it um so i'm under the bridge and waiting for is my this friends. dad or All stepdad this is dad Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think they were all mobilized in some way, but my dad was actually in the helicopter. So, um, the, was uh, dad on board with the whole idea of sending you to these places or was this more of like a mom and stepdad decision? This was, he was on board with it. He was on board with it. Um, but definitely I think the last holdout of all of my family members, I think he was the one that was most skeptical about it. Um, but you know, he's, he's up there. So I'm, I'm waiting. And all of a sudden, you know, my, they had like a little search party of people. And this guy comes around the corner. I was under a bridge overpass. So this guy kind of comes around the corner and seen as soon as I see him, I just fucking bolt. And so I run through like a bunch of like, you know, really intense woods. I cut myself up. I jump in a river and try swimming to the other side. All the while there's a fucking helicopter like above me. So I'm like freaking out and like, you know, all this shit. And so I climb up on the other side, like climb up this shit. I get on top of the bridge and then I like, you know, get on top of the bridge to like kill myself. So I like throw my feet over the side of the thing. Um, the guys down below are like talking to me and trying to like talk me down from it. There's like cars going by. This the would be such a good movie. I was about yeah. to say, does, do you meet up with Morgan Freeman and Ziwa Tanejo? Like, this is yeah. like, you know what it feels like to be a, a wrongfully accused convict. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm there and I'm like about to jump and uh, the helicopter, my dad, this is the crazy part. Um, my dad, wait, the helicopter, we just arrived. Yeah, we just arrived. <laughs> well, it's one of the crazy parts. So he, they land the helicopter on the side of the highway. Um, and the, the pilot, I think his justification was it was an emergency landing, but it was really like, you know, my dad's watching me about to kill myself. And he's like, put the fucking thing down. So they put it down. Um, while I'm talking to the guys in the river, another guy kind of just grabs me around and throws me on the ground and like saves my life. Um, and then I get transported to, because of all that, you know, because that mental was mental facility now. Yeah. So then I, so then I go to a, uh, I go to, um, a mental facility and I'm there for yeah. a few days and then I get, I get discharged. Um, and so that's the story. I mean, that's the running story. And it makes, uh, it makes more sense now when I was like, there's this guy, Rodrigo, he helps people while you're immediately like, no, no, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. <laughs> no more yeah, of them. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so um, yeah. I don't know. That was, that's the story. That is such a wild story. Um, And then, so then after that, my dad was like, so I'm, you were asking him, was he on the, um, was he on board with this? Mm -hmm. Um, After that, he was absolutely not on board with it. um, Obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. But my mom and stepdad were still trying to fucking get me sent to, um, and it's actually, I'm glad we brought this up. They were sending me to a place that's called an RTC or a residential treatment center. 
And those are like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, um, <laughs> bad, like really bad. And actually that place yeah. Island view is no longer around because of rampant physical and sexual abuse. Um, and that's where they were going to fucking send me. And, you know, it's like, so anyways, my dad ended up kind of standing up to my other parents and being like, we're not fucking do this. He almost killed himself. He's literally like, you know, this is not working at all. We're just dumping money into this, all that. So I end up staying with my dad. And then, um, you know, I end up, he basically like all the problems that I had about like being out and drinking and smoking and all that shit. My dad basically was like, Hey, look, I don't want you to get in trouble. So if you're going to smoke pot or you're going to have beers or something, do it at the house. I will not, I will no longer, um, come down on you for it. I just want you to be safe. I don't want you driving drunk and I don't want you to get in trouble with the police. And mm -hmm. as soon as he did that, it sounds ridiculous, but it was like a lot of shit shifted for me. And I started like, you know, taking school more seriously. And I ended up graduating and going to college. And now I'm like a, a, what they wanted me to be. Um, but kind of, it's crazy because the, the kids that get wrapped up in this fucking system are, you know, I mean, most of the kids that I knew that went to that program with me, the vast majority are either dead, um, full blown, you know, homeless or, or drug addicts, or they are, you know, um, you know, have horrible relationships with their parents. And it just seems like, yeah, I'm, I really think that that's a toxic, terrible industry, and it's sad. It's, that it's, it's a so business bad. model in which the recovery level and the relapse level are mind-blowing. Like 80% of the people that go through yeah. those type of facilities actually relapse, mm -hmm. and in horrible ways, yeah. with like a lot of aggression and strength in, in what they're choosing to do. It's right. like the only business or industry that can still be in business with those numbers. Mm -hmm. Like imagine hiring any type of doctor and them telling you, well, 80% of the times I fail, but I'll do my best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's nuts. And I actually, it's funny too, later on in college, like many years later, um, I ended up becoming friends with, um, who were actually now two of my best friends, uh, these two guys, Smith and Sims, and they were both went through the exact same program and actually went to Island View. And we would have been in Island View together. And they were like, dude, I can't believe you escaped. Like that's, that's insane. And like, thank God you did because these are all the things that were happening and it was awful. And, um, you know, they're, you know, yeah. So, you know, and they were some of the ones that like, I mean, they have their issues, but like, they're not, you know, um, you know, there's still a lot, you know, they're like good people. And like, you know, they were kind of the exception, I think, to like you're saying the 80% relapse rate and yeah. just the, because, you know, it's like, dude, if, if you put me through that, as soon as I'm 18, I can check myself out. I'm going to go fucking berserk. You know, I'm going to go do well, every that drug. Depends, that, that also depends on what country you live in, because the legal structures actually allow things like, for example, here in Mexico, all you need is one family member, like so someone who's uh, from your nuclear family, which means your family or your siblings or your spouse mm -hmm. or your children, if they're if they're over 18 in Mexico, they can like sign a piece of paper in any of these facilities and be responsible for your well-being and just mm -hmm. completely remove all of your rights right yeah and so that's i was actually i sent brian this there was an expose that was done on that place island view um in 2016 by the huffington post and it was actually really good 
Um, and one of the things that they were saying kind of to your point is that a lot of these facilities, they've shut down a lot of them, um, but a lot of the facilities that still exist are ones in states where there is sort of that wax, um, what do you call it? Um, parent, uh, custody, you know, where you can sign over someone. So it's like Utah and Georgia. Custodian custodianships or the, the conservatorship, the thing that Britney Spears has going on right now. Mm -hmm. In Spanish, it's called tutoria legal. It's Mm -hmm. like your legal tutor. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the docu, the Paris Hilton documentary? Have I? Yeah. No. It, it, because like it starts off being like you know about Paris's rise to fame, but then it just totally goes into like when she was a kid, she went to something not the wilderness part of it, but definitely mm-hmm. like one of these like work camps for you know troubled teens or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, really interesting documentary. It was the first thing that opened my eyes to that these things exist. I guess Drew Barrymore went to one as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's like you and to, you know a lot of it's you're in like, good companies yeah, yeah yeah basically right. where's your tv show is what I'm <laughs> yeah well um, here we are okay so, yeah um i was gonna ask you rodrigo what do you make of the what andrew said about how like when his dad basically gave him that like kind of show of confidence and giving you a bit of autonomy and telling you like look you can kind of do these things in the house how things kind of started shifting for you in an instant because i think about that and i'm like maybe a lot of parents around the country or i don't know maybe it's just not parents people think that the way to fix someone is to throw them into these programs and to do that i feel like it made you feel so much more lonely and you know you feel like no one was like paying attention to you or your needs or what you needed yeah here and your dad doing that was just such a moment of like bonding that you actually needed yeah um i think it was that um i think it was also you know feeling like they weren't like, and it was like, you guys aren't doing your job. And like, these things are, are geared towards people with money. Right. So it's like, you know, rich people. And I come from a family of means and like, they're like, Oh yeah, just throw money at it. It'll fix mm-hmm. itself. You know? Yeah. And it's like, that's not, you know, that's not how it works. It's like, I really feel like if my parents hadn't been so like, you know, gung ho on, you know, and, and, I get, I see both sides of it, but it was like, I was in these programs with kids that were like selling heroin and like, you know, were like really bad, like, or, or had like some seriously fucked up shit, not all of them, but there were some, and I'm like going like, dude, I was like smoking joints and skipping class, you know? I mean, I was doing my fair share of shit, but I'm like, it seemed like we really didn't, you know, I was never grounded. I was never like, there, like, it seemed they like jumped from like one to a thousand. Right, exactly. And, and it was like, it felt like they didn't do their job, but I'm the one that has to like deal with all this crazy shit um, to a degree, you know? Before we get into why the, the shift happened, because like I, I want to get a little bit more of the context yeah. before, like, mm-hmm. uh, because that's, um, I want to end with the shift. So, so Rodrigo, before we dive into the shift, can you, I, I'm so curious what you're seeing here in terms of biotype and systemic psychology, uh, in, within Andrew. I'll, I'll dive into that uh, a little bit in a few minutes. First, I need to know way more information about his family to understand the systemic psychology of that system. Um, and there's a few things I already noticed about biotypes that I want to dive into. Like the first thing is, dude, you're fun enough and charismatic enough to make whatever sound amazing. So of course you have a very biased understanding. I've been on both sides. Like I, I did I did some of my, my um, 
servicios prácticas profesionales we call them in Spanish like when you when you need to practice your work as as you're finishing college practicum is that what that's called like practicum practicante yeah so something yeah. like that it's it's like you need to be in the workplace and when I was finishing my master's degree I actually worked in a couple of 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 rehab facilities and even a psychiatric ward uh, with a recovering facility uh, um, and it it was really interesting so I understand both sides of it I understand how they're built and how they're psychological justified uh, like even the wilderness I've never heard of it but as you started explaining I could justify most of what you said with like psychological theories of why that should work um, but at the same time um, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way we understand recovery in my understanding of it uh, in my theory about it the first thing is drugs are never the problem they're a symptom And when we treat them as a problem, we remove all compassion for the human being that's going through it. And, and we feel like the recovery process justifies making it prism-like, mm -hmm. uh, which will never work. And this has to do with something we've talked that we've touched upon in the podcast at some point, which is remember the Stanford experiment, the prison mm -hmm. experiment? Uh, yeah, human beings are not made for power. And, and when you give someone power, it corrupts them. And when you give them absolute power, it corrupts them absolutely. And the big problem with this type of facilities is that you're giving absolute power to people. Uh, you're removing every, everybody's rights. You're doing things that you've taught them through the years that are completely forbidden, that are illegal, that no one could ever do to you. And then you're suddenly placing them in a place where everybody has permission to treat them that way. They remove your freedoms. They remove your identity. They remove everything. And I know that as, for a small percentage of people it probably works i honestly believe that for most people for which facilities have worked it's not the facility or the therapy itself but the fear of being locked down again because you're pretty much an inmate and and you lose absolute autonomy and freedom in your life and and when you hire people and give them absolute power they will abuse it so like there's there's a stupid Um, blind spot in, in this type of facilities, which is knowing the human psyche and knowing what happens to people when you remove their freedom and also knowing what happens to people when you hire them to have absolute power on top of someone else. Uh, even in the cult episode that we had, uh, when we were talking about how, how some psychological and coaching tools are used in, in cults and how they never really, they're never really intended to become that at the very beginning. But the more power you give to the leader, the more they feel like they can get away with anything thing so it, it's a very similar path that we're taking now uh on the other side i i'm, I'm realizing something about your biotype yesterday i was actually in the middle of a workshop when i received the messages so i could only see it like briefly and i went like yeah of course he's a melancholic but now looking at you and look at the, at the shape of your head and especially the size of your of your hands you are a melancholic but you have a little bit of choleric in you which is really interesting which is why you can be feisty and not only thinking about things because most melancholics will just think of the plan and never really feel ready to push through you felt like you were ready to push through because you have that little bit of choleric in you and that's why your jaw is sharper and your hands are massive my friend like if you put your hands by your head uh can, can you do that yeah like it's almost all of your face um compared to mine and i don't have small hands but you do uh, have a big head <laughs> i do have a very big sanguine head that is true um but anyways um 
I, I want to know more about your relationship to your parents, if you're comfortable talking about it, and how everything was unfolding uh, right before that. But yes, the the despair and 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 feeling of losing your freedom actually gets the worst out of people, not the best. And then it becomes a, a horrible cycle because they remove your freedom you don't really understand what's happening most of the times they don't even ask you that uh, that like if you're okay with going to a place like this just two huge bodyguards show up and tell you we're leaving and and then thinking that that won't bring up the worst in human beings under aggression and and things that they would have never imagined doing at someone just to try and become free is the stupidest system in the world and in fact what we tried in uh, as i was studying systemic psychology and we've talked about this in the past even though we haven't really dove uh, taken a dive into it uh, is that we practiced working with a family without working with the addict and realizing why actually the system needed an addict and how the addict is a symptom of the whole system and not just someone with problems themselves and out of the 10 families that we worked with seven of of the addicts stopped using and we never had contact with the addicts we just worked with the family mm -hmm. so i'm not saying this for anyone who's listening to go like yeah i'm my parents problem no it is your problem but sometimes it actually stems from the love and commitment that you do have with your family on certain needs that they have that we can't see because no one educates us in this hidden strengths and how we react in life and why a certain relationship with dad will become something in my in my family when I grow older with my own with my own children and how a particular thing with my siblings is going to be something that defines my professional life for the rest of my life and and because no one explains this to us it's hard to understand that this is just a symptom yeah no I, I think I, I totally agree with that um, yeah it seemed like I don't know a lot of yeah I guess it kind of goes back to what I was saying just about like feeling like I don't know, going from that zero to 100 and then being like, well, you know, why didn't we try something else? Um, yeah. You know, and again, in my, you know, ha having gotten older, initially when I got out of this thing, I was like going, fuck them, it's all their fault, you know, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, now that I'm older, I'm like looking back and like, you know, doing some introspection, being like, you know what, like, I was really out of control at that time. Um, and so I try to give them the benefit of the doubt of, you know, sending me there the first time. And honestly, you know, the first one that I went to, um, you know, it, I, I'm not trying to defend these. I hate even giving them compliments, but there were some positive things that I took from that. Yeah. Um, and I feel like had I completed that thing and come home and maybe it would have gone differently. So um, they should have tried what I just tried with you which mm -hmm. is I'm empathetic on your side. And even though I'm admitting that there must be a bias because there always is just opening that space of compassion and treating you as a human being makes right. you even say positive things about them. That's mm -hmm. step one in therapy. And sometimes people forget the one one of therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your family, your upbringing? Uh, yeah, I have, I had, I have four parents. I've, two parents that were together. They divorced when I was four, then they remarried. Um, so that's the thing. I have uh, a brother who is older. I have an older brother. Um, that's how I know Brian. They're good friends. Um, and then I have two half sisters who are 10 years younger than me and a 
an adopted sister who is 15 years younger than me. So, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Big, big, diverse, crazy family. How about all the parents? How did that feel like? And who did you connect with? Who didn't you? I didn't connect with my stepdad for a long time. Uh, that took a while. Um, uh, I connected with my mom and my dad, uh, up until, you know, these things started happening. And then my relationship with my mom got really bad. And um, same with my stepdad. But I mean, with my stepdad, it, d- it did take a long time, even after this whole thing for us to really connect. So it wasn't like a thing that was right off the bat for us. My stepmom very much loved and and was, was close with my dad. Um, very close growing up. It's gotten harder as I've gotten older to get um, to keep that relationship strong. I still love him, but it's definitely like a kind of, uh, I don't know, man. He's kind of like gone off the, the, the deep end with like some right wing crazy shit. So it's like hard for me to like, you know, get past that. But, um, you know, he's, uh, yeah, I'd say we're, we all kind of get along. Um, yeah. What would you say your place in the system was like, how did they see you and how did you see yourself compared to everyone else? Um, like what role was I filling in the family? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, definitely like the, uh, the problem child. Mm -hmm. Who did that support? Who did that help? Who did that give freedom to? Uh, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. Usually what, what you're describing in systemic psychology is called carrying the symptom. Mm-hmm. So I've used I've used this example within my own family before, but my parents, both my mom and my dad, they're still together, but they had this really deep need for a man. They they didn't have the connection that they wanted to their parents. They didn't feel like their dads in particular paid enough attention to them. Mm-hmm. And and my sister was born. She's very beautiful. But then I was born and they forgot about my sister, even though I looked like a monkey when I was born mm-hmm. uh, because I had this full beard when I was born. I'm just kidding. Right. But I was but I was really hairy and I looked like a monkey and they completely forgot about my sister because mm-hmm. they had this need for a, for a man. Mm-hmm. And my sister subconsciously started picking up on how much they wanted like a son and their son to be their dad in a, in a certain way, like to give them the emotional support that their parents didn't give them. Mm-hmm. And my sister sub- subconsciously started becoming the symptom within the system, which is every time I failed at something, she had to fail at something else massively. So I was still their golden child. Mm-hmm. And to give you an example, like if I flunked, a, if I flunk a subject, uh, they, the, the, her school started calling saying that they would expel her. Mm-hmm. Uh, if when I crashed my car, she got pregnant, mm-hmm. like a week later, mm-hmm. no one can plan that consciously. No one can mm-hmm. be that perfect consciously, but subconsciously, given that 90% of who we are is absolutely subconscious. Uh, you're really powerful for from the subconscious. Even when we go into into sports psychology, I, I always tell people that when they hire me in sports psychology, like lately I've been working with the Mexican Olympic team and it's always confusing for them because when I start working with them, it sounds like I'm disenrolling them from their sport because the first questions that I start asking is, why are you doing this? Why are you dedicating your life to this? This will be over in a few years. What the hell are you going to do with the rest of your life? And they get really confused. But what I'm really looking for is a, is a hidden motivation because I know that from an awareness level, from a conscious place, pretty much no one would choose the commitment that's needed to become an, an Olympian. And, and most of the times they have very negative motivation. 
motivations. Like, I, I'm going to prove this to my dad. I'm going to prove this to my mom. I'll show them that I am good enough. When I have that gold medal in my hand, I'll shut, I'll, I'll sh I'll shut everybody's mouth. And it doesn't really happen, but that egoic promise uh, mm -hmm. is, is extremely seductive. And mm -hmm. my sister's promise was maybe I can keep my parents happy through this. And up until we saw it and we addressed it, my sister was kind of free from the pattern uh, mm -hmm. and she started creating her own life. Uh, but it, it was hard and it took us like probably 25 years to, to realize what we were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so saying like, um, I was a problem child. I, I was a problem within the family. That's actually carrying the symptom for someone else. So mm -hmm. I know that I'm asking you a really challenging question within a structure that we usually don't teach people. But uh -huh. who, whose relationship or whose life was better because you were the problem? Yeah, I just... Uh... I don't know. I mean, I can give you a push, I think, in this direction. Yeah, yeah, what's up? I, I, I already have a couple of examples myself, but go, Brian. I mean, we kind of talked about this, but do you think it involves kind of like your bro in terms of... I don't know how it would serve him. Like, I think, I mean, you know, he was definitely like the golden child of the family. I don't know. My brother was like, you know, uh, straight A's in school, uh, very, very good looking, very successful. Um, never caused any problems. So, I mean, I guess from that theory, then in turn, I would do the opposite of that. Um, I guess that's what you're looking for, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that would, I don't know how that serves him because he was so much older. It's, it's not for him. You wouldn't do it for him. It's in the same way. My sister wasn't doing it for me. Mm -hmm. In fact, she kind of hated me. Mm -hmm. It, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't about me it was about giving it to the system in other words the need wasn't about me succeeding just because of me it it was about my parents getting something mm -hmm. so maybe it's more complex than that it has to, it has to do with why your parents needed a golden child mm -hmm. yeah i don't know i don't know that's tough that's tough i don't i don't have an answer for you there i'm sorry <laughs> i just i don't know i mean we can we can keep going i just don't i really don't know yeah I feel like just bringing about this, sort of, this sort of things up really helps the audience to, to start realizing why they might be doing crazy shit in their own lives. Uh, but if I were you, I would start paying attention to how the success of my son gives either tranquility or, or, or even peace to some of the people around, especially like in your case, I'll, I'm just going to put it out there like this. Um, the guilt of divorce is really hard and feeling like you fucked up your family and maybe your children uh, is something really tough on people. And even when they try and hide it, it usually becomes something massive and, and it just it just becomes an outburst somewhere else in a new relationship with your health, with your business. And, and people most of the times don't have the ability to even realize where it came from. And having a golden child kind of makes you feel like you didn't fuck up that much. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. That that definitely kind of makes sense. I think on my dad's side, I can see that. Um, and at the same time, you being the broken one, mm -hmm. this is, uh, um, 
<clears throat> this is why you're so proud of your position in your life, my friend, because you're the wake up call for everyone. You must be the one in the system always pointing out everything that's not working and, and even using like if they tell you something like this is wrong about you, but that is wrong about him and that is wrong about this relationship and this whole family's fucked up. So don't come to me with it. And you become kind of the wake up call with everyone about everything that's wrong, including these facilities and all the people that pretend that they can help people and they can't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd say that's accurate. That means that you're completely into a systemic pattern and you're not really choosing the way you act. And really? You reacted yesterday is completely planned that by this structure. Yeah, most people are like that. Like you, you, you shouldn't feel like we're telling you that something's wrong about you particularly. Like I was in a systemic pattern myself and I had no idea because no one explains this to us. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we kind of lose control of our lives because this becomes a life mission. It becomes like I need to wake people up and they need to realize how wrong this is and I will fight unfairness. But at the same time, this, the type of life that you create doesn't really allow most people to listen to an important message that you kind of that that you're bringing to the world and and it makes you lose sight of things that might be really important to you it is interesting because i've talked about because the story andrew told about like running away from <clears throat> the woods like every story andrew tells is kind of amazing like he'll be like i went on a date with a girl last night let me tell you what the date was and the date is something where like your jaws on the floor by the end of the story because it's like how do you like find this like craziness in your life I mean, it's amazing like they're the most amazing stories ever but it is one of those because, things where i'm like because he's because he's an observer of life and at the same time he has been trained for all of his life to look at everything that's broken about everyone and so then what it, he goes and finds those broken things and enters himself into that system even even if we send him on a date with the healthiest like the psychologically healthiest girl in the world mm -hmm. he would find what's wrong with her and he would be able to portray it in an um irreverent funny charismatic way and you get to thank that to your mom my mom yeah because that part of your personality can only be built by mom really yeah but what part of that like what sorry just specifically what part of that your your inner confidence how comfortable you're on your own skin like mm -hmm. how how yeah how comfortable you feel b being able to be irreverent and and poke people's egos because mm -hmm. you must do that a lot and and prove them wrong when you don't even care about the subject just you just want to see them melting down being arrogant and in love with their theory mm -hmm. and, and noticing that there's a huge hole in it that you could see and no one else could see mm -hmm. does that does that ring a bell yeah i guess i mean what you're saying i get that from my mom but like if you if you knew my mom i mean are we saying I, that she was I, like... It has, it, has, it has nothing to do with who your parents are. It, okay. it has to do with a certain interpretation growing up. That's why we're so different from our siblings. Even if we're twins and we were born in the, from the same genetic structure and we live in the same house with the same parents, they mm -hmm. end up being very different because they interpret their parents in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. So I, I can give you an example of this. I always use this example because I love it. And it only happened a year ago. I asked this girl permission to share this, but... 
I was doing a workshop in 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 LA, a, a workshop in Spanish, and I had this girl that was 19 years old, and we had an exercise, and there was 150 people in the room, and she just she just started leading the whole team. I go like, you sit over here, you go over there, you do this, you do that. That's an ability that's only created when you interpret your father's actions as love, as an attention. Like this guy cares about me, if, if even if they were horrible to you, if you interpreted the if you interpreted them that way, that you start feeling the ability because dad gives me confidence in my abilities and mom gives me confidence in who I am and mm -hmm. this girl after seeing that of course I approached her and I said daddy was really amazing right he's your daddy's little girl he must love you and she looked at me and she said um, I actually don't know my dad uh, and I was extremely confused because I, I've been developing this theory for 15 years and I've trained over 100,000 people and I've never met anyone that this theory doesn't apply to. So I asked her, like, tell me about your dad. And she has this whole, I won't go really deep into it, but she has this whole history about how her dad is someone who was involved in crime in Mexico and he fell in love with his mom on a trip to the U.S. and he was going to quit everything. He fell in love with her mom. <laughs> Not his own yeah. mom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you. Uh, fell in love with with this girl's mom, and and he was gonna leave everything and just move to the states and be with her and hide from the Mexican cartel and and then she got pregnant and he was extremely worried and he he said i'm actually really important within the cartel and if they know that i fled and I, that, that i already have a baby and a, and a wife i'm they're gonna kill you and they're gonna kill my baby i know what's going to happen i'm going to protect you from the from the for the rest of my life but i need to leave and every year she receives um well, every month she receives letter, letters and money from him she's very well off and and um, she receives a, ver a birthday present and a birthday card and, and she feels like he's extremely present in her life. But then as mm -hmm. soon as I talked to her, I was like, this actually validates the whole theory in a mind-blowing way. Like, mm -hmm. even if you don't meet them, if you create a nice story in your head about why you didn't meet them, like if my dad went to war and, and died, but I tell myself that he died protecting my freedom and my country, I might grow with all of those indicators in my personality complete, even though I never had the relationship with him. And the, the funniest part when I tell the stories, I usually tell people we need to be open to the possibility of all of this being a lie and the mom just having money and the mom just pretending there's letters and, and, and gifts and, and birthday and, and Christmas cards are coming from some imaginary guy in Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, but even by doing that, you can still have all those indicators of, of the masculine part of your personality being completely in shape. Mm -hmm. So So what I'm saying is, you're very comfortable in your own skin and that means that at some point you must have interpreted mom as, as someone who cared about you even if it was just to complain about you mm -hmm. so that's why i say like you get to be thankful of that because even sending you to those places feels like attention feels mm -hmm. like you matter you you look around and you see some of your friends who are in way deeper trouble than you and they have no attention from their parents things like that mm -hmm. that's what i mean but you you have a very interesting personality my friend you're 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 a very smart interesting impulsive human being yeah i was gonna ask i don't really know many andrews in this world in terms of like yeah there's a like it, you're so funny because andrew can be very quiet and introverted and seem to sort of like you know, kind of a, a guy you wouldn't really like, you know, you have a nice beer with them and just have a nice conversation. And then he tells you these stories and his scrappiness and his like sense of adventure and the way he can like 
you know, fuck with the system and with people is also just incredible the exact same time. There's like a lot of different layers happening. Well, if you get someone who's mainly melancholic with the life story that, that he has so that he has this type of personality and you add you add in a little bit of the choleric, this is someone who's going to... Every time a choleric has a melancholic son, the melancholic son is going to burst their ego every time. Like melancholic children will, they don't do it on purpose, but they always do it. If the choleric dad starts bragging about a talent that they have, they'll fail at it as he's bragging. They'll prove that they're not good enough. And and the choleric parents hate their melancholic children for that, especially if they're boys. But if that kid has a little bit of choleric, oh, he'll be feisty. Like he'll fight back and he'll run his mouth and he say every everything everybody's doing around them they become a wake-up call for everyone as, as we just said and if they have enough mom uh they, they'll be charismatic about it you could make a living off of this what's his personality is it promote is it promoter or is it uh it's mainly controlling mainly controlling yeah that makes sense but controlling is not much mom even though andrew does have it in his personality yeah, controlling actually talks about the masculinity within that too, uh, but but the personality means it talks about the movement. So right, that's right. interesting in, in the way he interprets it. As soon as I said you need to thank your mom, it was like, what are you talking about? Because that's not obviously what that personality like that values. And if the listening audience is confused, there's a link in the show notes that says like start here intro to biotypes, where we go over the different breakdowns of systemic psychology, the different biotypes, and the personalities that are that are created from there as well uh just as a little side note andrew it, it is interesting yeah yeah go on brian i was gonna say your relationship to your mom and your dad is very different Ye- yeah um i mean you know a lot changed it was you know at that time in my life me and my mom weren't close at all i mean my dad were very close and you know and i kind of dealt with that just through the divorce it's like trying to figure out like you know feeling bad about like not seeing my dad enough or like, you know, whatever it was, you know, holidays were always tough. Cause it's like, which house do I go to for this one and that one? And um, so, yeah, I think like now I'm very close with my mom. I'm still close with my dad, but I'm definitely closer with my mom than I am my dad now. Um, you know, we take away all that kind of. What do you do that- for a living? Um, I work in the production industry, uh, but now I, I just started working for a startup uh, that does sustainable construction. So, and I, I haven't I haven't started yet. I start in two weeks. I've been unemployed for a year because COVID, so um, it's been kind of shitty. So, really, I'm unemployed, but that's what I was doing prior. He turned his van into like a cabin that he can drive around the country, and it's fucking incredible. It's yeah. really good. Thank you. That sounds it's amazing. so cool. I'll take that van if you don't need paradise. it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I just, I also want to say that the listening audience, if you guys want to be sitting in Andrew's shoes right now and come on the podcast and have this sort of a, a come to Rodrigo moment, <laughs> um, there is a Patreon patron level that allows you to do this it's the highest level it's hidden below the fold but if you want to come on and and be uh like have a life story kind of examined by rodrigo brian and myself will be there to add a little color commentary there is an option to do that um rodrigo do you have everything that you need to kind of go into like the why things shifted afterwards 
Well, I think we we already went into that. It's the fear of reliving it and an exit route of that. Well, when he talked about that, it would be very different. Yeah, because when he came back and he said that his dad gave him permission, a lot shifted, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, I'm curious to hear why that happened. And as well, like if other people are dealing with their children and like don't know what to do instead of sending their kids to some of these places, what can they do with at the home? that would shift the behavior and make the kid feel safe like like what happened with Andrew you know after the fact well regarding that specifically i think hold on the first and thing before is, you give yeah. that answer if you guys want to hear <laughs> the end of this podcast with that whole answer incomplete as well as some questions from our audience go to patreon.com/rgpdevelopment and sign up to become a patron for as low as $3 to hear full length episodes as well as all the other goodies that you get over at patreon.com/rgpdevelopment thanks for listening want more biotypical well, good news, there's a longer version of this episode available at patreon.com slash rgpdevelop. There, you'll also be able to find ways to get on the podcast yourself, ask questions, as well as watch a live taping remotely. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast and subscribing. Remember to rate this five stars wherever you're listening to it, and we'll see you next time.